0: Hey everyone, Paul here. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up that I've been away on work while recording this episode, and my hotel room is super boomy. So if it sounds like I'm trying to speak softly, that's why. I also want to take this opportunity to say thanks to all of you. We've already surpassed 50 downloads in just our first two episodes, which is a big achievement for a brand new podcast. Anyways, enough of my chatter. Enjoy the episode. In this week's episode, Terran won potato breaks, and weather throughout our solar system. We're your hosts, Paul and Blake, and you're listening to Space Week. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to week three of Space Week. Uh, Let's get right into it with this week's launches. First up, uh, Rocket Lab launched two satellites. These were actually delayed by a solar storm. We'll get into that one later. But Rocket Lab lifted off from their launch complex in New Zealand on Friday. The mission titled The Beat Goes On sent two black sky earth imaging satellites into LEO, low earth orbit, marking uh, Rocket Lab's 35th orbital flight of their electron rockets. That's pretty cool.
1: That is pretty neat.
0: Everything went well. Um, Like I said, it was delayed, however, a total of 90 minutes by that solar storm. But here's what's pretty neat. They ended up actually recovering this booster, by the way. It had parachutes on it, and it splashed down in the ocean. So I'm thinking they're looking at possible reuse in the future, similar to, you know, like what SpaceX is doing.
1: Yeah, that's definitely an interesting way to reuse it, though. They're hauling parachutes, which... Is a lot of weight, actually, for these rockets. So that's something to consider.
0: Yeah, that is something to consider. And, um, I mean, it's not as much weight as something like the big landing legs on SpaceX. But what I'm thinking is, you know, it's splashed down in the ocean, and now you're going to reuse it. So I wonder what kind of, you know, repercussions you got with that. We'll have to see. Anyways, uh, the next one, SpaceX launched 56 more Starlink satellites. This was also on Friday, but in Florida. Um, the total payload for this weighed a little over thirty eight thousand pounds, which tied the record for the heaviest payload flown on a Falcon nine rocket so that 's pretty cool. I honestly didn't know that they could carry that much, but uh this was also this specific booster's tenth flight into space, so they're actually 10. getting a lot of life out of these things.
1: yeah, sure sounds like it. Have they released any sort of estimate on how many times they'll be they're estimating? They'll be able to reuse these falcon nines
0: you know that's a good question like a like a lifespan on them
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: yeah I, I i don't know that's something we could definitely look up though um yeah that's a really good question our third one here our third launch this week big one relativity space
1: relativity space that one was really exciting
0: Yeah, so uh, for those of you who weren't with us on our previous episodes, Relativity Space has been trying to launch the world's first 3D-printed rocket. It's uh, 85% 3D-printed, including the engines. And um, basically, they made history on Wednesday when they launched their uh, 3D-printed Terran 1 for Orbit. Now, notice I did say for Orbit, not two Orbit. We'll get to that. So the launch named GLHF, that's uh, good luck, have fun, was delayed for high-level winds, but everything was a go for their amended launch time of 1125 Eastern. Now, everything was going really well. It made it through Max-Q, which is, you know, a big thing. It's big structural stress on, on the spacecraft. And uh, it was a huge milestone for them, you know, there by itself. But then shortly thereafter, Miko main engine cutoff and stage separation as well. So they made it all the way through Max-Q, main engine cutoff and their stage separation. So pretty, pretty exciting stuff for them. Now, however, an anomaly occurred on the second stage and they didn't get a light. So this was much like Japan's H3 flight uh, earlier this month. So they had their first stage separation second stage goes and no luck you know second stage just didn't light
1: yeah it's super unfortunate really exciting launch to watch though. and i mean it was a nighttime launch so the uh Methylox mixture yeah, the- <laughs> made this really nice blue hue from the the flames and i mean dude it was it was awesome
0: yeah, it was really cool. You know, so we're used to like the orange hydrogen flames, you know. So this is uh, a methane burning engine, which is something new for us. And uh so, yeah, so it's like this blue flame and you can find the pictures online. They're really, really cool. Um So, yeah, I mean, this proved the potential for a, for a 3D printed rocket as well as methane fuel. So really, really neat stuff. Um And this gives relativity the green light for another go as well as continuing developing their uh their terran r rocket which is going to be a bigger reusable rocket hence the, the r terran r but yeah if you haven't already you can actually watch the launch on youtube um, i post an article on our website with it as well definitely go check out the pictures that we were talking about they're they're really really cool you can find them all over the place just look up terran terran one rocket launch and, and you'll see them right away But yeah, that solar storm I was mentioning that delayed uh, rocket lab. So this happened on Friday. and It was our most powerful storm in six years, and it reached as far south as New Mexico. So pretty crazy. Um, They didn't really see this coming. The storm peaked at a G4 out of five on the geomagnetic scale, which is uh, considered severe. It was upgraded after initial alerts for a G2. So, um, you know, it's almost like, you know, hey, you're going to have like a Category 1 hurricane. Oh, just kidding. You know, it's like a Category 4. Hope yeah, you're like, uh, hope you hope ready. Or, yeah, something <laughs> yeah. like
1: that. Get so, ready. It's going to suck.
0: It's going to suck. We're sorry. So but, what exactly
1: uh, is our concern with these uh, solar storms?
0: So, you know, the, the more minor ones can just, you know, kind of, sort of, cause electrical power grid issues and stuff, but with something this severe, it can most certainly cause uh, voltage control problems on the power grid. It can actually, you know, basically trip things, turn things off, and require resets. Um, Surface charging is a big thing on spacecraft, so this is a lot like static electricity building up, you know, like on the outside. So, it can interfere with all kinds of things, you know, navigation, communication, you name it, and it can actually uh cause more more atmospheric drag on low earth satellites, which I'm not really sure how the science behind that works, but it's definitely something to take into account but uh but yeah, I mean when it comes to something this big corrections for orientation on a satellite will will usually have to be made i mean it completely you know can completely knock them off course. So it's 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 a pretty big deal. And then as well as just affecting um, radio communications with various things, obviously GPS degradation because, you know, that's in your satellites as well. So it can have a pretty big effect. Now, I didn't see anything in the news about, you know, anything catastrophic happening, but it's, you know, possible that, that all these things can occur. And they're expecting more of these over the next couple of years as we reach the peak of the solar cycle, by the way. so. Kind of keep a lookout here over the next two years.
1: Yeah. So, if you had some electrical power surge or something on your on last Friday, definitely blame the solar storm for that one. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, going back to, uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, thanks, son. Um, but <laughs> but no, um, we we're talking about, you know, images of those methyl engines. Mhm you can find pictures of all the uh the auroras and stuff from this was was really cool too i mean just appearing in places you'd never see them uh, it was really really neat but yeah solar storms man it's it's uh, pretty crazy Mhm um now going back into space flight here Boeing Starliner's first crewed flight test or CFT is being delayed now till 2024 So this isn't this isn't good news um, they were originally planning for April and February before that, and I think even December before that. So now they're delayed all the way till next year, potentially. There's been a number of issues. Um, the biggest one is like conflicting launch dates with SpaceX going to the ISS. So there's that, but also now they're looking at like a lack of redundancy with launch providers. And what I mean by that is Right now, they're set to use the Atlas V rocket, which is made by United Launch Alliance. And there's rumor that that's going to be retired soon.
1: That's unfortunate.
0: Yeah. So, you know, now you've got this capsule that has to be refitted for a different rocket here, potentially in the future. You know, before it even gets a crew. So it's um that's 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 a big deal. It's a that's you know it's a big issue.
1: Yeah, they've got quite a few hurdles to overcome for sure. I really hope that they can find another launch provider, and maybe they put it on top of a Falcon Nine or like a Falcon Heavy, depending on how big that capsule is.
0: Yeah, but, you know, and I and I wonder if they'd be like, if they'd be willing to do that, you know, because it's it's Boeing's capsule, yeah, top yeah, of, it's on top of the competitor's rocket,
1: you know, <laughs> it, it's a competitor's rocket for sure, but I. Don't think Boeing has anything in the pipeline to develop its own launch vehicle. So I don't I don't that's think that's a so. problem as well.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you've just got these hurdles that they got to jump over. I mean, they got a potentially great platform here. And then on top of that, I, I wasn't aware of this, honestly, but they had several in-flight anomalies that need to still be assessed from their orbital flight test uh, two mission. So they've had two orbital flight tests now before the crewed flight test and there's still a lot of things that they need to correct. Now, their spokesperson said that these weren't anything, you know, to be considered major problems, but they still need to be fixed. And one of those being new software implemented. So now it's like okay, we got to re, you know, we got retrofit for a new rocket and we got to make new software. So you got two big things there going on.
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure, it's like when it comes to my background in web development—it takes a lot of time just to put one system in. Sometimes, so you have to have a huge team to really knock something out really quickly. Um, I'm not sure how big Boeing's team is, but regardless of the size of the team, it's still going to take quite a bit of time.
0: Yeah, it's a big, it's a big undertaking, you know. And uh, even if you think you get it right, you still got to test it and everything. So it's a question of you know, you put all this new software in, you're potentially you know launching on a new vehicle. Should you do another uncrewed test before a crewed flight test?
1: I would say so, yes. Just we want to make sure that everything's safe before we send up humans, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. Exactly. So it's you know, that's kind of the point I'm getting at. But um and then here, you know, NASA has pushed forward the SpaceX crew seven launch from twenty twenty four into fall of twenty twenty three. So, you know, it just kind of reinforces that idea that we're not going to see Starliner launch till next year. Moving on with with that. So, you know, along with crewed f- spaceflight here, um, the NASA Artemis II astronaut announcement is now set. Uh, it's set for Monday, April 3rd. So that's coming up here pretty quick. They're going to be live streaming it at 10 a.m. Central Time. So keep an eye out for that. So they're going to be announcing the astronauts that are going to be doing the uh the moon flyby mission this time around so we're not we're not landing yet remember that we're, we're not landing you know till till artemis 3 is, is mm-hmm. what's currently planned but so this is just gonna be a flyby but still huge deal right we're putting astronauts on it this time we're and, going back um,
1: to the moon we're going
0: back to the moon man <laughs> going Heck back yeah. to the moon
1: for the first time i think in 50 years
0: Yeah, 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 over 50 years now. So, so yeah, I mean, we had the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, you know, a little ways back. So,
1: oh, yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Man, super exciting.
0: Man, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait to see like all like the new pictures and footage they get, you know, with modern technology. It's going to be so cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, you're talking uh, big developments in the imagery space, you know, because like, Back then they had these film cameras, now they have digital cameras and all that. Right. I just want to see all the pictures and
0: Oh, here's here's a fun fact for you. Now, you know, I'm not sure how much of this is uh folklore at this point in time, but um I met a guy, right? And he mm-hmm. was a uh a NASA engineer during the Apollo missions. And his job was to develop um basically uh TV equipment and radio equipment uh for, for the broadcasting. And he said, that he's not sure what the heck happened to it. But the cameras and stuff that they developed for the Apollo moon missions originally, their their raw like resolution coming back was the equivalent, if not better, than 1080p today.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah.
0: He said, you know, if you saw the original footage, raw footage off the reels, it was incredible. Now, he said, you know... Once it goes through all the compression and everything, goes out to all the TV stations, blah 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 blah. You know, through the entire pipeline, you get what we see. You know, yeah, but, very um,
1: unfortunate, but that's okay.
0: But yeah, I mean, film was a really good medium. People forget that film is really, really good. You know, just because it's old, it's 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 a really good medium for for that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, just just fun fact, just throwing that out there. So yeah, I don't know what happened to all that stuff. It might be in a vault somewhere. But yeah, it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. In other big news, as far as uh, launching vehicles go, Virgin Orbit has restarted its operations. An outside investor for Virgin Orbit named Matthew Brown wants to invest in the company and make it cash flow positive. Brown really likes Virgin Orbit's business model, and he's also a fellow space enthusiast himself. So that's really exciting. Um, My understanding is it's like a really slow return to work order. They're going to probably... I I really don't want them to, but they might lay some people off just to make sure that they can stay cash positive and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, still kind of scary stuff, but, you know, like baby steps, you know?
1: Yeah, the big news here is that last week we talked about Virgin Orbit, like shuttering its doors, just like pausing operations for a little bit. But now really quickly, it's back up and running in, in like a slow return to work kind of order. So we'll see what happens more on that.
0: Yeah, that's good that they got like kind of an outside investor coming in and it's always good that they have like an interest in, space, you know, space flight themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Virgin Orbit is an exciting company. I I really want to see them succeed in the way that they're going to do it because the way that they launch their vehicles or their spacecraft and satellites and stuff is they launch it off the back of a Boeing 747, which is the big queen of the skies, the the Right, oh. kind
0: of reminds you, you know, like the shuttle carrier days.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, in fact, our seven forty seven carried the shuttle, so you know, really cool, really awesome thing to see and
0: continuing new... on the legacy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of billionaires, we have Blue Origin resuming flights in its new Shepard spacecraft. Uh, Blue Origin's owned by Jeff Bezos, and they found the cause of the previous mishap that occurred in September of last year.
0: Yeah, I do remember seeing that, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: They announced on March 24th that an investigation into the launch concluded that the nozzle in the rocket's engine suffered a structural failure and it caused a a pretty major thrust misalignment. So, you know, that's not a good thing because if your thrust is not vectoring you properly, you're not going to space today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty scary thing in a rocket. Yeah, when it's not pointing the the direction you want to go.
1: Yeah, exactly. The investigation revealed that it operated outside of its temperature range, so probably caused some kind of like uh, melting or some kind of malformation in the engine itself. So, yeah, which that's then, never good. Yeah, and that caused the thrust misalignment, of course. The good news about that mishap, though, is the cruise capsule escape system worked perfectly according to Ariane Cornell, the VP of commercial sales over at Blue Origin.
0: Now, no one was on board this one, right? I'm trying to remember.
1: Not that I recall. No. Okay. Regardless of that, anyway, being able to test the crew capsule's escape system in such a real-life Real, situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, real-life situation is phenomenal, you know, and they said that it worked perfectly. So, that's a huge step up for safety for them.
0: Yeah, see, because like when I watch the video, you you know, you actually kind of see the rocket start to, you can kind of see it start to malfunction, and then you see the capsule come off, and it kind of looks like a fireball, and you're like, oh god! But no, it's actually just a launch escape system, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, yeah, that's cool.
1: Yeah, and you know, commercial space kind of moves on uh, from its mishaps, and there's always these developments and stuff like that. We have a really cool Japanese lander that actually reached lunar orbit this week.
0: Um, yeah, see, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't even hear about this thing until recently.
1: Yeah, no, I know. It popped up in the articles, and I thought, oh, that's awesome. Let's put a lunar or, a lunar lander back on the moon, and let's find more data that we can. Right. The Tokyo-based ice base said Hakuto-R, mission one lander entered orbit around the moon at 9.24 p.m., eastern time on march 20th after an orbital insertion burn which is basically just the lander itself slowing itself down so it can match the orbit of the uh the moon
0: right right
1: in my research i actually found that the trajectory to the moon that the lander took was very interesting as they launched way past the moon's orbit like it looked like almost a straight line from the earth way past the moon I want to say, at least in the illustration, it looked like it was double the distance from the Earth that the moon is. And then it kind of comes back around and rendezvous with the moon.
0: That's that's weird, you know? So, like, it went out past the moon and then just kind of fell back in?
1: Yeah, in exactly. Yeah. So, like, you know, they, they shot it, at least according to this graphic, it looked like it goes straight up from the Earth and then kind of just makes this elliptical path where it um rendezvous with the moon and then right there is where it performs the maneuver to get into the orbit around the moon and man it was it's a really interesting little graphic we'll have to post it for everyone to see but typically when it comes to these kind of missions what you want to do is you essentially you want to achieve orbit around the earth first and then kind of launch yourself in this like elliptical pattern and keep raising your orbit until you get that rendezvous with the moon it's a little oh, complicated. so they didn't
0: even they didn't even circularize around the earth they just launched straight out from the earth
1: yeah yeah that's what the graphics showed it it looked like it just went straight from the earth out to that's... wherever it went and then kind of fell back and then made that rendezvous that's um, crazy
0: huh okay
1: I'm wondering if it's more fuel efficient than what they normally do. I don't know. Anyways, really, really cool thing. Um, this was milestone number seven on their 10 milestone plan for this lander, starting with the launch of the craft itself. And then milestone 10 will be landing on the moon with this lander.
0: So they're basically, you know, like 70% of the way through. In yeah, other words, Yeah.
1: You could definitely say that. And, You know, I I really want to see this mission succeed because iSpace is a company with like a huge goal Uh, on their website. They have this video showing their goal for 2040 to have like a moon colony, essentially. And they want to start um, an economy on the moon and in space. And, you know, they want it to be to the point where we can take commercial flights to the moon and just tour it, I think. I don't know. That's, see, that's kind of what I gathered from that video.
0: That's a big deal. You know, I mean, again, it's like, why haven't I heard of this? Because, you know, they got like all these ambitions. You would have thought that we have heard of this earlier. And I'm sure there's probably some listeners that are like, uh, yeah, dude, where you been? <laughs> like, I'm in Iraq <laughs> this whole time. But, yeah, uh, yeah, no kidding. I mean, but yeah, I, I honestly had no clue about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's super exciting. And this lander is just their first step into achieving that goal for them.
0: Well, that's still pretty pretty cool.
1: Oh yeah, and more in the realm of commercial space, uh a lot of these companies in the industry are seeing the International Space Station being retired in the future and they NASA has announced essentially that they're just going to deorbit it. Um and these other space companies it i couldn't find exactly who said it but the point being is these people believe that this is a missed opportunity if we just deorbit the space station rather than like recycle it or something or repurpose it even
0: yeah see we were talking about this earlier you know um how much is it going to cost and what's it going to take to keep the iss up there you know and and how do you weigh those options um obviously you know we're in no position to try and make assumptions on that but yeah i mean it's still you know interesting to see if there's actual companies out there that are now kind of fighting this
1: exactly and you know nasa has a plan to spend about a billion dollars on a on developing and building a tug to deorbit this the the station and that's what these companies are calling a missed opportunity right uh, they want to repurpose it they want to recycle it they want to do something with it I think even somebody mentioned maybe having it as in a higher orbit and just leaving it as a heritage site.
0: I mean, that'd be kind of neat like to that, go revisit be, later on. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs>
1: yeah, that'd be pretty that'd be pretty sweet. Like I would love to go see the space station in orbit around the earth, but it is what it is and the big thing is is that stations at the end of its life primarily due to the fact that There's very old technology on board and um, I guess they just don't want to update it or they don't want to spend too much money in updating it. They'd probably save money even by just putting a new space space station up there.
0: Yeah, yeah, you definitely could. Yeah, you get to a point of diminishing returns and it's like, at this point, just, just build a new one.
1: Yeah, exactly. And people in the industry... They want to build an orbital recycling facility and then take that orbiting the the space station and like push it into the higher orbit to meet up with that orbital recycling facility and then break down the space station for parts and like raw materials. You know, anything that you can do in the in terms of like repurposing or recycling it, they want to do that.
0: Yeah, see, that sounds really cool but man, That sounds really expensive and hard to do. Oh, yeah. So. And
1: even even Kathy Luters, the NASA Associate Administrator for Space Operations, she kind of ruled out the idea of doing this, stating that it'd take way too much effort and money, of course, because, well, that's a very large space station. And, you know, pushing such a large craft into a higher orbit would take a very large tug. So, you know. If they end up rebuilding or building a new space station, it'd be great to have that newer technology on board. Yeah, and, for sure. And, you know, with new technology, we have so many new discoveries, such as maybe using potatoes for space concrete.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about this. Okay, yeah, Blake's favorite subject again is space potatoes. <laughs> space potatoes, baby. Let's go. <laughs>
1: So, scientists have discovered that using potatoes for space bricks, or space-crete is what they're calling it, is better than using human blood.
0: Um, wait, say that again? (laughs) Did you just say what I thought you said?
1: (laughs) Yes, better than human blood. You heard me, I, right?
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I would think just about anything is better than using human blood for, for space breaks. What are they really going to do, like, have a freaking gladiator court and, like... No. You know, the astronaut that survives. It's like, oh, yeah, this... Nothing this that building, violent. This building was made by uh, Commander Jim over here. and
1: <laughs> No, nothing that violent. My understanding oh my was God. they were going to take donated blood, so... For those of you that wanted to donate blood to make space concrete, unfortunately, we've found a better way. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry. am hey, sorry to be be the bearer of bad news for you. <laughs> it's better than
0: astronauts fighting to the death to see who becomes the next building. <laughs> yeah, right. Say.
1: We dedicate this building in your honor. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyways. Um These engineers have created an intriguing concrete alternative using simulated Martian or lunar soil, potato starch, and salt. Okay. It's twice as strong as conventional concrete. No way. Yeah, and like I said, it's being named Starcrete, which I think is a pretty fun name, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) The strength of starcrete isn't the only advantage that it has. Um, Scientists from the University of Manchester in England estimate that only about 55 pounds of dehydrated potatoes could be used to produce nearly a half ton of starcrete, which is about 200 bricks. And to put it quickly into perspective, a three-bedroom house on Earth needs about 8,000 bricks or somewhere in that ballpark.
0: Right, which sounds like a lot, but I mean, you know, when you start talking about cutting down, you know, 55 pounds for, what'd you say, like half a ton worth of bricks?
1: Nearly half a ton, yes.
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's that's a big deal. That's a that big is a deal. huge
1: deal because one of the many challenges of rocketry or rocket science in general is how big can this payload get? Can this launch vehicle or can we carry this much weight into into space, you know, and if it's only fifty five pounds to make two hundred bricks, it's a huge deal because fifty five pounds is nothing compared to SpaceX's recent launch of you said thirty eight thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah. Now imagine so thirty how many,
0: how many potatoes. <laughs> how many potatoes, man? <laughs> this sounds like this sounds like a, a middle school math word problem.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, Paul if you, goes if to the market a... and buys ten thousand potatoes. <laughs> yeah.
0: How many can he bring to space? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, these bricks they're wanting to use to build like structures on the moon or maybe even mars you know and if we become an interplanetary species and stuff like that that'd be pretty awesome if you ask me
0: yeah yeah it'd be and really cool
1: you know at that point there would be life on mars if there was a human on board or <laughs> on the planet itself but yeah something else that's super exciting about mars is there's a new study that shows that imagery from a spacecraft, so like a satellite or something like that, orbiting Mars, if it's been supplemented by aircraft data, so like air, a um, they actually have a helicopter drone on Mars right now flying around and taking pictures. If they took the imagery from the, the satellite and the helicopter drone and they combine them together, it would help scientists pinpoint the best places to search for microorganism that might be present on
0: on the red planet so kind of speed up the search process in a way you know oh
1: yeah it, it would speed up the search for life on Mars and you know when we say life on Mars it doesn't have to be aliens you know like yeah, these yeah. little green Martians you know <laughs> it could be <laughs> it could be bacteria any kind anything like a, a bacteria a virus something it, who knows, but um, point being, we could find it much quicker, and then we could study it and how it got there and stuff like that
0: right, origins of life in our solar system kind of thing,
1: yeah, um, this study was carried out in Chile's Atacama Desert, which is considered to be one of the most mars like environments on earth
0: probably not the uh you know the award that you want to behold <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. <laughs>
1: no, not at all. <laughs> But, you know, uh, the great thing about this study is it, it would help us answer the age-old question of, is there life on Mars?
0: Ooh, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, something else that's super exciting about Mars is we have another rover up there called Perseverance. And yep. Perseverance actually snaps some clouds. They snap some pictures of some clouds on Mars.
0: Oh, this is neat. Okay.
1: Oh yeah, we have weather in our solar system. Isn't that isn't that really cool? <laughs> um so NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab released an image captured by one of the onboard navigation cameras of the Martian clouds. The clouds are made up of dry ice condensed on reddish dust particles suspended in the atmosphere.
0: Huh, okay. Any idea how the how the ice got there? They didn't they you know, they say anything on that? <laughs>
1: I did not read anything about that, unfortunately. I just saw the pictures, thought they were neat, and thought I'd bring it up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but hey, you know, clouds on Mars, that's pretty cool stuff.
1: Clouds on Mars, you know, that's that's definitely something to keep in mind.
0: Well, speaking of icy clouds, so Mars was not the only planet with weather uh, this week. So... I mean, all the planets in our solar system, I say all of them, but they all kind of have their own form of weather. But uh, something that astronomers have been looking at now is uh, Uranus, or Uranus, or Uranus, or however you want to Uranus, pronounce it. Uranus, yeah. Our favorite, you know, little blue <laughs> ball planet. Okay, so Uranus is growing this, uh, they're calling it like a smoggy ice cap. And uh, it's, it's over its north pole. And this is believed to be the result of the planet's long seasons. So one year uh, on Uranus is, is 87 years on Earth. So it's an extremely long year. And you're looking at seasons of, of 20 plus years. So you've got, uh, you know, like in the wintertime, because the planet's on its side, the wintertime on one hemisphere hardly ever sees any sunlight whereas the other side is seeing sunlight almost all the time. <laughs> so, astr- yeah, I know. It sounds like a you know, not very fun time. You so, said,
1: what, 20 years for one
0: winter? Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't
1: think you could put up with that.
0: <laughs> so, imagine 20 years of winter and darkness. You know, doesn't oh, that sound God. like fun? But astronomers have been studying the differences in photos uh, taken by Hubble, and they've, they've noticed that this cap is starting to grow over the northern hemisphere. So, um, so yeah, I guess they're going to keep an eye on it. They're going to have to obviously wait a while to figure out if this is something that is seasonal on the planet or if it's, you know, some sort of weird thing that's come up, but you know, again, because it's an 87 year planet, they got to kind of wait for it to go through the other seasons to see how this progresses. So, uh, I, like I said, we'll have to wait and see now something else that they're looking at too by pictures of Hubble. Is Jupiter's red spot? It's been shrinking for a long time, and it's now at the smallest we've we've seen it, and it's continuing to shrink. So, you know, there may come a day where the Great Red Spot of Jupiter is no more. Now there is some good news. Uh, there's greater activity in the vortex band of its northern hemisphere. So. If you look at the planet, you know, it's split into bands, uh, you know, that are all parallel to one another. If you look above the equator, there's a band that looks like a bunch of uh, vortices spinning in opposite directions. And they're seeing more and more activity in this band. And they think it's pretty unlikely. So don't get your hopes up. But if two of these vortices were to merge, you could actually get one large vortice that's bigger than the great red spot is. So we could actually have a new spot on Jupiter, bigger than the great red spot that we have now.
1: Yeah, for sure. I always really like it when we go out to do some astronomy and we take pictures of Jupiter or something like that, and we see the great red spot in the pictures after we processed it. And, you know, if it's getting smaller, it probably won't dissipate in our lifetime. But, you know,
0: Yeah, yeah, that's how it goes. But yeah, it's really cool. And by the way, listeners, if you guys ever have the opportunity to look at the planets through a telescope, by all means, do it, even if it's a cheap one. Jeez, look, you know, go look at Jupiter. It'll blow your mind. Jupiter
1: will definitely blow your mind. And it's really easy to spot, too. It's a really bright object in the sky. Yeah. But speaking of Jupiter, we have these planet classes called Super Jupiters and the James Webb spot. Sorry. The James Webb (laughs) Space Telescope has spotted a sandstorm on this exoplanet, BHS-1256b. It's a gas giant planet that orbits two stars. Oh, it's a
0: binary system.
1: Oh, yeah. Really cool, right? And this system is only 40 light years away from us, so I believe it's still within the Milky Way.
0: Yeah. I think yeah that <laughs> yeah, sounds that sounds right that sounds you right 40, yeah. you said 40 right not like 40, 40. million yeah yeah okay. 40 40 okay, yeah, okay okay
1: yeah so this super jupiter is uh a nickname for planets in this class it's 20 times the size of jupiter that's
0: huge dude
1: that is massive and i mean going back to what we said about like go out and look at jupiter through a telescope it is huge. And that eyepiece, it's really easy to see. Now imagine if that thing was in our solar system and we just look right at it. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Yeah. This this super Jupiter, it has an orbital period, which is basically like a year for that planet's orbit of 10,000 years.
0: So, So yeah, so basically one year on that planet is 10,000 years here on Earth. Exactly. Thank so you. we were just talking about Uranus, right? Being 87 years. And this thing's at 10,000? That's what they say. Yep. That's, that's insane.
1: Yeah. And because it's so far away from its stars and it has such a long year, it's really easy for the James Webb to look at it because it's not really obscured by the starlight near, um, of its stars nearby.
0: Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you can differentiate it better. I gotcha.
1: Oh, yeah. So because of that, they're actually able to get a lot of data out of it. And with all of the data that they've been able to collect on this planet, they've learned that the planet's clouds have been measured to be up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, or for our metric friends, about 830 degrees Celsius.
0: See, that's crazy hot. And I mean, being that far away from the star, there's got to be a reason for that, right?
1: Yeah. You know, and I have a theory. I'm not sure if this is correct. This is just in my mind. This is why it's so hot. It's a super young planet. So it's probably still in its formation period. It's only 150 million years old.
0: Oh, okay. So it might. Yeah, it's probably still just cooling down.
1: Oh, yeah. it. That's what I think. And for our listeners, for reference, Earth is four and a half billion years old. So it's been around for a long time. This planet has only been around for, we say, a blink of an eye in cosmic terms. Yeah. Yeah. So this planet will change drastically as it ages. Anyways, the sandstorm that they've spotted on this planet, it's made up of these ultra fine silicate particles which are smaller than sand, even. Um, in fact, they say it's more akin to, like, very fine particles and a smoke or something like that.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Researchers say that the sandstorm won't last forever because, like I said, it's a forming planet, or I think it's a forming planet. Uh, so it'll change drastically over the next millions and millions of years. But that about wraps it up for us this week. Let's move on to our listener questions.
0: Listener questions, so we actually had some really good ones this week. Um, I hope that I make this simple enough. <laughs> um, I'm going to try not to skip over too many things. Sometimes but, uh, Science is very complicated. It can be complicated and it makes it even more complicated for me to explain. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, anywho. So our first one uh, was in relation to the Wolf Ray or wolf you know Wolf Riot stars uh, of uh, our last episode and going along with those it was how long does it last were we just lucky to get an image of this so for those of you who, who weren't here um the james webb took a picture of a wolf Rayet star um a little bit ago and so they uh, they don't last very long and this this listener is wanting to know are we just lucky to get a picture of this thing you know what's up so my answer to this is is we were sort of lucky so for reference there's only about a thousand of these stars discovered so far in our galactic neighborhood so that's the milky way and the immediate surrounding galaxies and only about somewhere between 5 and 600 in the milky way so the reason that they're so hard to detect is not only their short lifespan but because they emit more infrared light uh, rather than visible light and You know, in more recent years, we have telescopes like James Webb that has infrared sensors on board that allow us to detect these much more easily. So it's likely we'll see the number of these uh, discovered grow as the year goes on. But um, but yeah, so there's not a whole lot out there and and they're very short lived. So to put this kind of into perspective, our sun and stars like it last about 10 billion years. Whereas a Wolf-Rayet only lasts a million years, usually at most, sometimes only a few hundred thousand. So if you want to kind of get more details on these stars without me getting too in depth, uh, I did write a short article on our website if you want to check it out and uh, you can go see it there. But moving forward with the star topic, we had another question and that was, how does a star go supernova? so there's uh this can be pretty complicated, so i'm gonna try and you know tone it down here we'll We'll see where this goes, but basically, when you have a supermassive star, we're talking upwards of forty times the mass of the sun. Your star can grow so rapidly that it starts stripping itself of its own material so a wolf rayet star is a really good example of this um and it continues to heat up and the excess heat allows it to start fusing heavier and heavier elements closer to its core. So remember, a star is just a big fusion reactor. Under normal circumstances, it fuses lighter elements like hydrogen and helium that reside in the photosphere, which is basically just a fancy word for the surface of the star as it strips itself of these lighter elements and begins heating up under radiation and in further expansion, it burns the heavier elements, speeding up the process even more. So it's like this chain reaction. So it heats up, burns heavier elements, which causes it to heat up more, burns even heavier elements, and it just works its way down. So eventually, and I'm kind of explaining this wrong, um, but the pressures of expansion no longer balance with the increased mass and gravity of the core, basically. And eventually the core collapses on itself and the star goes boom. Now, there's some more physics stuff and limits and everything in place that determine if a black hole will form or if you'll get like a neutron star as the result of it, but we won't get into that. But basically that's what's happening. Is the star is expanding and expanding and peeling itself apart like an onion, you know, in layers, until eventually it can't handle it anymore and collapses and, and explodes. So, um, yeah, very good question so far. And I uh, hope I haven't lost anyone yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now moving on to the next one, uh, was does sound travel in space? Is it similar to diving? So this person's a diver. Yeah, short and- answer, nope. <laughs> short answer is, is no. Sound does not travel in space, but... <laughs> There's some exceptions here. So um, with your kind of reference here to diving, now when diving, sound travels exceptionally well. Uh, That's because sound travels faster in water than in air. And it has to do with, you know, water being denser than air. And it can be dependent on changes in water pressure and water temperature. But bottom line, sound can travel for several miles underwater without losing energy. I mean, you think about whales communicating miles and miles apart. Um, It's all because water can transmit that sound that far. Along with whales just being really freaking loud. (laughs) But um, in space, of course, uh, sound cannot travel because it's a vacuum. So there's no particles to to vibrate together and, and create a medium for the sound. So astronauts on the ISS can hear each other because there's air on board. Now on spacewalks, they can only hear the sounds inside their suits. Um, through mics and basically headphones inside of their skull caps that you see them wearing is how they can communicate. Now, going back to there's some exceptions here, we can pick up some forms of sound in space. We'll call them forms of sound, like radio waves and other interference that you know we can pick up with radio telescopes and things and you know, point sensors and arrays. We can pick up these signals and convert them to sound. To kind of get an idea of what's going on for our kind of, you know, our, our little bitty peanut brains to kind of understand it a little better. <laughs> so, yeah, really good question. Bottom line, no, sound doesn't travel through space. But there are ways for us to pick up certain vibrations and waves that, that do travel through space. Now, um, does the ISS experience a night and day cycle? And uh, it sure does. So the ISS completes one orbit every ninety minutes. So that's forty-five minutes of daylight, forty-five minutes of night, and this happens sixteen times in twenty-four hours. So you know you're basically going you know day night day night. So you see sixteen sunrises and sunsets if you're an astronaut each day. Now to kind of you know combat this and and produce you know a workable you know livable schedule for the astronauts, um, they. Basically, have it set up to where they're working six and a half hours a day, on average, two and a half hours allocated for exercise, an hour for lunch, and then eight and a half hours dedicated to sleep. So that's how they kind of get through all that. But uh, but yeah, but really good questions. Really good questions Keep them coming. this
1: week. Yeah, please. But that'll be all for us this week. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us talk about all the exciting news in the space industry. You can find us on our website, SpaceWeek.co, where you can also find links to our Facebook and our new Twitter account, at SpaceWeek underscore. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform to know when our next episode goes live. We're now available on Google Podcasts as well, so you can check us out there.
0: So, keep your eyes on the skies. This is Paul. And Blake. signing Signing off.